Hey, good morning. Well, it's great to be with you all today. And we're going to continue with our series on prayer. It's our third message in this series entitled Ignited. And I'm so excited and expectant to share this with you today. Um, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Holy Spirit, come and fill my mind and my heart and my mouth with your words. Come and speak to our hearts. Come and build what you're wanting to build. Come and birth what you're wanting to birth. Come and have your way in our lives. Come teach us how to pray. Would you give us your heart, Lord God? Would you restore us back to your heart, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, well, to give you a quick update, yesterday we had a really powerful teaching by Gareth Lowe, the senior pastor of Every Nation Church in Berlin, um, which was really, really awesome. And if you didn't manage to make that meeting, I encourage you to get a hold of the audio uh, recording from me. Um, yeah, it was a teaching on warfare in prayer. So if you can get hold of that from me, please do if you couldn't make it. Right. So as I said, today is our third message in the Ignited series. And the title of my message this morning is The Heart of a Nation Builder. The Heart of a Nation Builder. And in order for us to have a look at this, I'm, uh, we're going to spend a lot of time looking at Nehemiah. Nehemiah was an interesting character. If you go and have a look at the book of Nehemiah in the Bible, um, he's, he's known a lot for rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And, and that's great. And, and we're also going to look at that next week. But the thing that I love about Nehemiah is that he was a man of prayer. Before he rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, first of all, he was a man of prayer. And that image is very clear at the start of the book. Um, and I believe God is raising up an army of men and women who will be like Nehemiah. He was a man who allowed what was on the heart of God to um, to touch his heart. He allowed it to impact his heart and affect his emotions and, and not only touch his heart but break his heart and move him to pray for the situation. And, and interestingly enough, God made Nehemiah to be the answer to his own prayers. And we see that often um, in scripture and we see it in our lives too where he wasn't only a man of prayer but was also a man given to action. And it's, it's awesome when God, when God uses us like this and gives us burdens to pray through. And then at a certain point, he raises us, up, raises us up to be part of the solution to the problem that we were praying about or to the burden that we've been carrying. Um, and, and the reality is that, you know, some of us have a bias for prayer and some of us have a bias for action. Um, but I really believe God is raising up men and women of both prayer and action. And Nehemiah was one of these. And um, prayer and action, prayer and action, this image comes through quite, quite strongly when you look at him in the book of, of Nehemiah. Um, another thing, another strong image that we find in this book is that of the Israelites rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, led by Nehemiah, um, with one hand holding a sword and the other hand holding building implements. And God is raising up these types of nation builders at this time as well, those who will be prayerful and wield the sword of the Spirit, um, be ready to fight, whilst at the same time hard at work on the ground, rebuilding the broken down walls of our nations and in our lives. And this is exciting for me. Um, yeah, so we learn many lessons from the book of Nehemiah regarding the heart of a nation builder. Um, it challenges us 
as the church and yet it also encourages us. Uh, we'll be looking at this book more closely over the next two weeks so let's get started. Okay so a man called Nehemiah. In chapter one of the book of Nehemiah we find Nehemiah in a position of personal ease and prosperity. He was a favored servant he was a cupbearer to the king. Yes, he was in a foreign land, but he was in, the he was in a palace. Um, he was not a minister of state like Joseph or Daniel was, but he would have taken a high position amongst the household servants. So he had a position of favor. He was favored by the king and um, he was in a position of ease and affluence. He didn't want for anything. And it was in this context that we find him in Nehemiah 1. I'm going to begin reading from uh, verse 1. It says, In late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. One of my brothers came to visit me with some other men who just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from, who had returned there from captivity and about how things were going on in Jerusalem. They said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They're in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, I fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. Now the thing I find fascinating is that he was in ease, he was in affluence, he was in prosperity, he, it didn't impact him at all, yet he still inquired, he still asked, he still wanted to know about the state of his people who'd returned to Jerusalem from captivity. And when he heard about the state of the wall of Jerusalem and the gates of Jerusalem, what did he do? He sat down and wept. He mourned, he fasted, he prayed to the God of heaven. Now, Jerusalem was hundreds of miles away across the, the, the desert. Nehemiah was far removed from this destruction, from the ruin, and even from the implications of it. Yet he inquired with a heart, ready to bear the reality should the news be negative. Okay, so he was interested. He was thinking about it. He was aware. And he discovered that, we read in that scripture, the wall had been torn down. The gates had been destroyed. What was his response? He says, when I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, I fasted, and I prayed to the God of heaven. What was he doing? He was allowing the situation in Jerusalem to break his heart. And he took it to the Lord in prayer. In other words, he carried the burden. And this is the first thing that I'm wanting us to learn for those of us who are called as nation builders and as intercessors. And I would like to assume that that's most of us, if not all of us. Okay. So the first thing that I'm wanting us to learn is we have to allow ourselves to be emotionally involved. We have to allow our hearts to be emotionally involved. If God is going to um, use us to be nation builders, to rebuild the nation, to rebuild walls. If, if we're going to allow God to use us in prayer, we have to allow ourselves to be emotionally involved. We have to allow ourselves to feel what he feels and even to ask him to give us his heart concerning what we see around us. Um, now this brings me to the topic of burdens 
Because if we're going to carry the heart of the king, if we're going to carry his burden, if we're going to allow ourselves to feel what he's feeling in order to pray, we're going to find ourselves carrying the burden of the Lord. We're going to find ourselves carrying some of of what he's feeling to him in prayer. It's going to move us to prayer. Now, I think it's really important for us to remember, and I know this, this I'm speaking to myself right now as well, that um, there are different types of burdens that God gives. Now, if I watch the news or if I watch um, reports of current affairs, of injustices and so forth, if I'm watching carte blanche or something like third degree, um, it's so easy to pick up burdens and feel sad. You know, in life in general, driving through certain parts of the country or when we're exposed to what is happening in different spheres and domains, it can, these types of things can end up burdening us if we're sensitive, if we've got a soft heart or if we're prophetic or if we're given to prayer. And um, we have to remember that not every burden that we see is ours to carry. I remember once the Lord he helped me with this because, you know, you walk through this, you watch this TV program, you read this news um, report. And if you try to bring all of them before God in prayer, you know, at a certain point, and you're allowing them to touch your heart. I'm allowing it to touch my heart. At a certain point, I can begin to feel sad. I can begin to feel heavy. And the Lord, had, he showed me this vision where I was walking through a field and there were a number of people walking through the same field and there were burdens all over the field. And he just said to me, Trace, and, and I saw a vision of myself walking past some burdens and he just said to me, Trace, not every burden that you see is yours to pick up. But it's important that when we see the burden that God wants us to pick up and carry, that we pick it up and we carry it to him in prayer. You know, on the other hand, we might find ourselves and I've and, and I've also found myself in this situation, you know, where things happen in life that harden us you know, for one reason or reason or another. We come to a point where we no longer feel anything, where we feel numb and, and we can actually have both extremes of these at the same time and vacillate between them. You know, our hearts can become hardened. We can develop a hardness and a callousness of heart because of life, because of things that happen in life. Maybe we've needed to harden our hearts to cope. Maybe we've needed to harden our hearts to self-protect. Okay. And um, when life happens, when disappointments happen, betrayal, hurt, disillusionment, tiredness, um, extreme weariness, when we see corruption uh, around us, unfairness, injustice, whatever it may be that we feel touches our hearts and causes us to feel sad or heavy, we can end up developing coping mechanisms to protect ourselves and we can harden our hearts. And, and this um, hardening of our hearts, when we harden our hearts to others, we invariably harden our hearts to God and His heart. We can't compartmentalize numbing and hardening. When we numb ourselves to pain, we also become numb to joy. When we harden our hearts to things and to people, we end up hardening our hearts to God. And so it's really important that we remember this and remember that when I start, when I remember that, when I start to feel sad about something, straight away I know it's a it's an alert for me I need to say Lord is this a burden I need to bring before you in prayer so that I can guard my heart 
I mean, think of it from corruption in government to what we see in the business realm to abortion or murder of the unborn, um, from mercy killing or murder of the aged, uh, which, which is called euthanasia, um, from abandoned babies to starving street children outside that we see, um, you know, in winter, freezing cold. We can come to a point where we want to bury our heads in the sand, so to speak, just to be able to get on with our lives, just to cope and, and just to fulfill everything that we need to do on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, but it's important that we remember if we're wanting to, God to use us in prayer, we have to guard our hearts, guard our hearts, maintain soft hearts. Yes, I'm not saying we, we you know, are doormats. No, I'm not saying that at all. We have boundaries, but we guard our hearts and we don't allow hardness, offense, bitterness, um, anything like that, numbing of our emotions. We don't allow that to be a constant state in our lives because it will hinder us in our prayer. I like how C.S. Lewis says it. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wronged and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, aimless, it will change. It will not be broken. Instead, it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. So powerful. Such a wake-up call. You know, I remember once God said to me that compassion is a gift. See, what happens often as people who pray for others as ministers, um, who minister to people, and it happens to me is often compassion leads me. If I, I might not have a word for you, I might not even know what I'm going to say to you. I don't have the gift of the gab like my husband, like, like other of you, you know, I might not even know what I'm going to say to you. But if I feel that compassion in my heart, I know I must follow it. It's a gift. It's the compassion of the Lord and it's compelling me toward you. And if I just follow that, I come up to you. Maybe I ask you if I can pray for you. I don't even know what I'm going to pray. Maybe I just start talking to you straight away. Something will start happening. The prophetic will begin flowing. God will show me what I need to pray for you. He'll show me, give me something to say to you because the compassion is a gift, but it operates as I step out in it, uh, on it in faith, you know. Um, even if you think about having compassion, compassion for, for people, uh, to serve people, to do things for people, you know. Compassion is a gift. As I give it away, I keep it. In order to keep the gift of compassion, I have to give it away. In order to give compassion away, I have to allow it to stir in my heart. And I've got to keep my heart in order that compassion can well up in my heart and I can be used by God. As soon as I block up the flow of compassion in self-protection, I begin to harden my heart. And that flow of virtue, that flow of ministry from the Holy Spirit, that flow of the rivers of life begins to be stopped up. And it hinders what God wants to do. So if we want to be effective as intercessors, if we're wanting to be effective as prayerful people, even as ministers of the gospel, as ministers of God, we have to guard our hearts. Now, wanting to ask you, what burdens you? When you look around at society, what things make you heavy? What things really touch your heart? 
um, what breaks your heart, what makes you feel sad when you think about it. And it's something that you, you don't just look at and feel sad and move on with the rest of your day, but it's something that kind of you move on and it kind of follows you, you know. Um, now, obviously, as I'm asking you these questions, there are some things that should probably burden all of us, so to speak, you know, and injustices and the like. But um, what is it that when you look at it, unless you pray about it and bring it to God, you remain feeling heavy, okay? Now, the answer to that question will begin to show you some of the burdens that God has probably is probably calling you to carry, okay? Um, now, I'm wanting to look at Nehemiah with regards to this, with what he did with the burden when he sat and he wept and he prayed to his God that, you know, the scripture we read from Nehemiah 1. And I'm going to look at Nehemiah 2 verse 1 to 5. And he says, early the following spring in the month of Nisan, during the 20th year of the king's reign, I was serving the king his wine. I'd never before appeared sad in his presence. You see, he was sad. The burden, he was sad. So the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. And I was terrified, but I replied, long live the king. How can I be sad? The city where my ancestors are buried is, are buried is in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire. The king asked, well, how can I help you? With a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, if it please the king, and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. Can you see that Nehemiah heard the news concerning the walls and the gate, the wall and the gates in Jerusalem in autumn, and he began to carry this burden in the autumn. And he only had his first opportunity to do anything about it the next spring. He carried the burden faithfully for a number of months. And I think this is what gave him favor with the king. This is what gave him success with his plans to rebuild the wall. He prayed it all through beforehand. He probably prayed. He probably prayed and had the heart and the mind of God on the matter. God had probably spoken to him and given him a sense of the way forward. But he carried that burden through autumn, through winter and into, and into spring. And what boldness Nehemiah had, what favor he had with the king. And I'm so sure, I'm pretty sure that it was born out of the prayer closet. You know, if we look and we read the, the, the account of Nehemiah, we see that the king financed his journey. The king financed the, his God and his protection. The king even financed the timber for the whole project and the house for Nehemiah to stay in. We can safely say that God provided so many things through that king. And he wasn't even a Jew. He didn't necessarily have any interest in Jerusalem and the rebuilding of its walls. But God used him to provide. And I'm sure that that was an answer to pray. That the prayers that Nehemiah had prayed as he was carrying the burden in his prayer closet. Long story short and drawing attention to where I want. Nehemiah goes, the king has sent to me, travels to Jerusalem. And the first thing he does is go out at night to inspect the walls and gates for himself. So he, he wants to see the state of the wall. He wants to see the state of the gates for himself. So he was looking. He inspected the current situation. And this is an important aspect for us as watchmen, for us as nation builders, for us as prayerful people. We need to watch. We need to be aware. We need to look and see what is the current 
current state before we begin rebuilding, before we begin launching out in prayer. We have to have an idea of what is the state, where we are right now, what work needs to be done and where to get us to where we're wanting to be. And when Nehemiah heard the walls were broken down and the gates were destroyed, he wept and fasted and prayed. Then he went to inspect these before beginning the rebuilding process, which I find very encouraging. I find that logical, right? And um, in this particular message today, I'm wanting us to, um, to with the background and the context of Nehemiah and, and what he was doing and his heart, um, and, and how he carried the burden and was carrying the burden. I'm wanting us to look at the significance of walls and gates today so we can apply it into our situation today, in society today. So first of all, I'm wanting to, to ask, what is a wall? What is a wall? Well, think about it. A wall is a boundary. A wall keeps the good in and the bad out. A wall is used as a protective hedge. You know, in Isaiah 5, the Lord speaks of his vineyard and he says, And now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it shall be burned and break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. And so there we see the consequences of having a broken down wall or a broken down hedge. You're open to attack. You're open to destruction, to ruin. When we build our lives, when we continue to live our lives in accordance with the word of God, with its standards, with its values, with its instructions, we're building up the walls of protection in our lives. When we have his word as the standard in every area of our lives, in every area of our families, of our nations, it protects us. So, so it, And that's what we want. Now, for example, just to bring it home a little bit, uh, take my husband and myself in our marriage. What is a wall? What are some of the walls or what are some of the bricks that we use to build up the wall in our marriage? Well, you won't find us traveling with some, someone of the opposite sex alone for extended periods of time. Um, you, you, you won't do that. That's part of the wall that we use to protect our marriage. You, you won't find us watching certain movies in our household. We don't allow certain movies in our house. Um, or in our eyes, in our ears, in our family. Um, we don't let our kids, as I'm sure many of you don't, we don't let them go out to the malls unaccompanied. That's a wall of protection around our kids. Kids are stolen these days. We don't know what's going to happen, you know. As a couple, something that we do for ourselves, we pray together each night before sleeping. Another part of the wall that we build up is we honor our parents. That's in accordance with the word of God. There's a promise that comes with that. Um, we see that in the Bible. Um, another part of the wall that we build up around ourselves, around our finances, that we tithe on our increase. We give, we, we give to the Lord first and we trust that he will rebuke the devourer and so on and so forth. Now I'm sure, and we have many more of those and I'm sure you also have, but that's part of building up the wall so we can build up the wall when, he when we live our lives in accordance with his word. We can also build up the wall as we pray and we declare his word over our lives. Um, if we look in Proverbs 24 verse 30 to 34, we see something very interesting. It says, I went by the field of the lazy man and by the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding. And there it was, 
all overgrown with thorns. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. When I saw it, I considered it well. I looked on it and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. So shall your poverty come like a prowler and your need like an armed, armed man. So you see Proverbs, from Proverbs we're instructed that passivity and laziness calls our walls to crumble. In our nation, in our families, in our lives, we need to be actively building up these walls by how we live, by what we teach, by uh, principles, by policies that we create, by what we declare. Um, it's important. In Ezekiel 22, verse 29 to 30, um, we see something else interesting. The people of the land have used oppressions, committed robbery, and mistreated the poor and needy, and they wrongfully oppressed the stranger. So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it. But I found no one. But I found no one. See, from this scripture, we see some of the things that cause a breakdown of walls in a nation. It says the people of the land have used oppressions. Oppressions break down the wall. They've committed robbery. It breaks down the wall. They've mistreated the poor and needy. Breaks down the walls of a nation. They wrongfully oppress the stranger. Breaks down the walls of the nation. Now, what was God's solution to this? He said, I looked for someone who would stand in the gap on behalf of the land, coming to God in repentance and prayer. You see, coming to God in repentance and prayer can help to rebuild the walls, can help to rebuild the walls. And I find it interesting how Nehemiah responded when he heard the state of the walls in Nehemiah 1 verse 4 to 11. Find it, I find it very interesting. He responds like this with this prayer. He says, it says, so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept. He's just heard about the gates and the walls of Jerusalem. That I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenants and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, night and day, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, identificational repentance. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray the word that you commanded your servant, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest of, uh, of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand, O Lord, I pray. Please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. 
So he prayed that prayer before he went before the king. It was a prayer of identificational repentance. He stood in the gap on behalf of um, Jerusalem and of his, uh, of his people. Now, for all of us in this nation at this time, whether we're South African, whether we're not, um, wherever you're watching this, whether you are, you are um, born in the nation that you're living in or whether you're not, we can't sit back and let it all happen around us and think, oh, it's not going to affect us. Oh, I'm not even part, I, I don't even, I'm not even a citizen in this nation. I'm not even born here. Um, my, you know, it, it won't affect me or my children. Um, what's happening in the world now? Ugh, it doesn't really affect me right now. So why should I care? You know, we can't sit back and let things just happen around us, even if we're sitting in ease and affluence and prosperity and peace, like Nehemiah was in the palace. He was sitting in ease. He was sitting in affluence. It didn't touch him personally, uh, physically, but he still allowed it to touch his heart. And it's important for us to still pray for the place where we're at. Remember, we looked at Jeremiah 29 last week and the context of Jeremiah 29, that scripture that we love to quote, Jeremiah 29 verse 11, about God knowing the plans that he has for us for good and not for evil. The context of that scripture, God is instructing his people in captivity to pray for the peace and the prosperity of the place where they found themselves because in its peace and prosperity, they would find peace and prosperity. The opposite would be true as well. Wherever we are, we need to still stand in the gap for that place. God has placed us wherever we are at. He's placed us as salt. He's placed us as light. He has placed us in the gardens we find ourselves and we still need to pray for its peace and its prosperity. We still need to stand in the gap for the nation where we're at, for the places, the businesses, the places where we find ourselves at. We still need to pray for these things. Okay, so that's, I was looking at what is a wall and what are the implications of a wall. Now I want to look at gates. What is a gate? What is a gate? How does it apply to today? Um, okay, so a gate is an access an entry or an exit point. It allows traffic in and it allows traffic out. Okay. It's, um, yeah. So it allows in and out, it allows things in and out. It's also a place of influence. In the Old Testament, we see that influential, influential leaders would often gather at the gates. We see this in Proverbs 31, 23. And Jesus spoke about gates prophetically when he declared that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church in Matthew 16, verse 18. Walls and gates that are fully functional mean that what is contained therein is easier to protect. You can control what has access and what can be taken away um, with walls and gates. And I'm speaking of the spirit realm as well as the natural. The natural gives us a picture of the spirit realm. Um, Ephesians 6 verse 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Often it is principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, and spiritual hosts of wickedness that occupy and rule the gates of our cities, of our nations, and of our, dom of our domains. And the domains that I mentioned last time, and you can visit, um, you can 
look at that message if you're wanting to find a list of those domains. The domains that I mentioned last time, each of those domains has specific gates within it, has specific aspects of influence within that particular domain. Um, and these gates could be governing bodies, they could be thought leaders, they could be power centers, um, and so forth. These gates are the primary influences controlling the culture, controlling the thinking, the policies, and the majority of how that domain functions. Okay, so gates, um, remember gates are places of entry and exit. Um, and gates allow or disallow certain ideologies and behavior. The, the dominant worldview and controlling spirit behind the gate is critical when we're talking about transforming society. And, and, and it's important to remember that a domain can be a gate, uh, can also be a gate. If we think of the media domain, um, I think that it's a gate because of the influence that it has over the thinking of um of people of this generation, of the next generation of culture. And we're going to look at that a little bit towards the end of the message. Some examples of gates include the media. Okay. And this is a, like I mentioned, this is a domain that is also a gate because it influences people's thinking and behavior. Um, education system with the worldviews it espouses in the curriculum. Okay. That is a gate. Cultural, uh, cultural traditions. Those are gates. Systems of governments and the political system. Those are gates. Okay. Legislation and current laws over a land. These open doors over a nation to allow and disallow certain behaviors. They help to create cultures that, that those are gates. Now, what are the implications of broken down walls and gates? Well, you're vulnerable. You're open to attack. You can't easily protect yourself from enemies and predators and from the enemy of our souls. Okay. So walls and gates are critically important in the natural. They're important even in the spirit the spirit realm, they're important. And like I alluded to earlier, each of the domains will have walls and gates. Each of our families, our schools, our institutions, and so forth, so forth, will have walls and gates. Our nations have walls and gates. Now, just quickly, um, a quick reminder of some of the, some of the domains is family, education, church, government, business and economics, including agriculture, health science and technology, media and communication, arts, entertainment, and sports. These are the domains. So these all have these, all of these will have walls and gates. And in various aspects and certain aspects of these domains, we will find walls and gates. And we can very quickly see if we just glance through that list, coming to our mind, we'll have ideas of gates and walls that are broken down in some of these particular domains in order to get our juices flowing in order to get us to think i'm just going to touch on a few of these domains briefly um, and mention some of the aspects of the walls or the gates that are broken down um, some aspects that we need to be watching and praying in uh, aspects that that need to be rebuilt okay now if i take the first example that i'm going to look at i'm not going to look at all of the domains there's not enough time for that but just to whet our appetites, let's have a look at family. And it's very clear in this day and age that the sanctity and the preciousness of marriage is being diluted and it's being attacked. 
from many different sides, um, from a culture of permissive premarital sex and living together being the norm, to adultery being acceptable, uh, even when, when it's watched in movies and even when we hear about it. Um, and so when we see it on movies, sometimes in our emotions, we can even find ourselves egging the person on to commit adultery, which, which is terrible. It's horrific, you know, if we really think about it. The concept of marriage being between one man and one woman has also been under extreme attack. Um, and it's taking hits left, right and center. Never mind what is being taught to our children by educators and not parents in, in higher grades of junior school regarding sex and using protection if they're going to be sexually active. Um, and of course, this gives connotations to our children that sex before marriage is permissive, um, is permissible and even expected. What are we teaching our children? So as we look at family, we can see the marriage bed is under attack. Um, so many aspects of marriage and family are under attack. There are many aspects of walls and gates that need to be built up. Um, if we look at the domain of education, you know, one look at some of the curricula that are being taught to the to children at our schools and tertiary institutions, it should be enough to wake us up from our slumber as, as intercessors, as prayerful people, as nation builders. You know, unfortunately in schools and on, and on campuses today, evolution is taught and, um, and atheism is often espoused. Maybe not um, overtly to, to say we are teaching an atheistic worldview, but the ideology and the values and the thinking from an, uh, an atheistic worldview comes through in the curriculum as if, it's, as if it's fact. And it's important that we are aware of these things as parents and as educators and as people who are called to watch in the, ed in the education domain because the consequences and the, the end results and the, um, the end of following the, these ideas to its logical conclusion and uh, the ramifications of it is horrific. For, for the atheist, man can have no more value and worth than an animal, as a, than a mammal, as both evolved by chance. So when taken to its logical conclusion, the application of this belief has ramifications like abortion, like euthanasia, like genocide being completely justifiable. In fact, this type of thinking was what propagated, propagated Hitler's plan to speed up the evolution of a genetically superior people. And it's important that we think through the end results uh, of what we believe and what we are teaching our children. You'll see there are more, there are more notes around that um, in the notes that I've given to you. I don't have time to go into it, but it's very interesting. But if we think about it, if we all have evolved from goo with the whole zoo, um, which is what is taught like fact in many educational institutions, what differentiates us from animals? If we weren't created in the image of God, how do we justify human rights? How are we special if we're not made in the image of God by a loving creator? If we evolve by chance and there's no ultimate higher power, how can there be right and wrong? Because who gives that standard of right and wrong if, if it's not God or some higher power? And we don't believe in the higher power, we believe in God, right? Okay. Did someone just create this good standard for us to live up to? And if so, why can't someone else decide to, to create a different standard for us? So you see what we believe and what we teach our children is so important. 
in what we teach our children, in what we allow them to be taught, we are building up or tearing down the walls of our future generations. You know, I remember listening to Ravi Zacharias talking about this, the late Ravi Zacharias, and he was sharing how in our tertiary institutions, we taught our business people and our, and our graduates that everything is relative, that, that, that nothing is absolute, you know, obviously accept that statement that nothing is absolute, but everything is relative. Then um, these graduates went out into the corporate world, went out into financial institutions and began to live and conduct themselves in their particular uh, business arena or area of work as if everything is relative. There are no absolutes. And what do we do? We take them and lock them up in prison and terrible things happen to, you know, the world market and, and all of that. But, but what is all of that, that about? We taught them that everything is relative. Then when they live through to the end, nth degree, when they live through to the end, um, to the end of what we taught them, uh, uh, we don't like the end fruit of what we taught them. What is all that about? We have to remember that what we believe, our belief, ideas have consequences. What I believe and what I teach my children will build up or tear down the walls and the gates for future generations. A quote that encapsulates these thoughts, thoughts so well is one by Viktor Frankl. And I, and I, lo and I love this quote, although it's, it's horrific, but it's, 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 it just it's wakes one up to the reality of this. And Viktor Frankl was an Austrian neurologist, a psychiatrist, and he was a survivor of the Holocaust. And he wasn't a Christian when he said this. And he said this, if we present a man with a concept of man which is not true, we may well corrupt him when we present him as an automation of reflexes, as a mind machine, as a bundle of instincts as a pawn of drives and reactions, as a mere product of heredity and environment. Then we feed the nihilism to which modern, modern man is in which any case prone. I became acquainted with the last stage of corruption in the human heart in my second concentration camp in Auschwitz. The gas chambers of Auschwitz were the ultimate consequence of the theory that man is nothing but the product of heredity and environment, or as the Nazis like to say, of blood and soil. Now listen to this. He said, I am absolutely convinced that the gas chambers of Auschwitz, Treblinka and Maidenek were ultimately prepared, not in some ministry or defense, of defense or some such portfolio or other in Berlin, but rather at the desks and lecture halls of nihilistic scientists and philosophers, rather at the desks and lecture halls of nihilistic scientists and philosophers. Education is so important. Okay, briefly, let's look at government. It doesn't take a profit to see that our government has many broken down gates and walls. You know, someone asked me a question the other day. Um, he was talking about the current situation in, in our nation, South Africa, uh, with what's happening with the corruption and the stealing and just everything that we see happening. He said to me, what is the problem? What is the problem with these people, these people who are, you know, involved in so much corruption and wickedness, you know, rich politicians, rich people in power who steal from their own people who are starving and have nothing. Why? You know what my answer was? The depravity of man. The depravity of man. Man without Christ as a savior, submitted to the lordship of Christ, is depraved. And that's just 
The reality, simple as that. You know, it was Malcolm Muggeridge who said, the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time the most intellectually resisted fact. The depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality. We see it all around us, but at the same time the most intellectually resisted fact. Why? Because if we re-recognize and we agree that man is depraved, then man needs a savior. Man needs someone to save him from his depravity. We cannot hold atheistic beliefs and agree that man is depraved. Man is depraved and we need a savior. And once we saved, we need to operate and live in accordance with his word. We need to submit to the Lordship of Christ. We can't just pray a sinner's prayer. It's not good to fill our churches with people who pray the sinner's prayer, but don't understand the need to walk in the Lordship of, uh, in the Lord, with the Lordship of Christ. The, the walking with Christ as my Lord builds up walls. In a nation, if we have leaders and politicians who walk as Christ as their Lord, who are integrous, immediately walls will start to be built up in the nation. And so we need to pray for those who are in office. We need to pray for God encounters. We need to pray for God's guidance. We need to pray for wise counsel. We need to pray that God would raise up those who would fill office um, uh, that who uh, raise up those who would be integrous, those who would be grounded in the word, those who would have a biblical worldview and carry the heart of the king and walk in submission to the word of, of the Lord. People like David, people like, for the most part, people like Joseph, people like Daniel, you know. So that's just a glance at government. Let's have a look at the legislature and um, the legislation that we allow to be passed in our land. In our nation, we as a people can't act like new laws being proposed won't affect us and ignore them. No. If the legislator wants to bring in new legislation that is unbiblical, we must speak out. We must pray to resist it. We must have a say. You see, the reality is when a law is created in a nation, when our leaders who have authority over us agree, power of agreement, they agree upon a law, that becomes a gate over the nation that allows and disallows certain things and certain behavior in the nation. Remember when Jesus, remember when Jesus taught his disciples regarding binding and loosing? It was to do with allowing and disallowing things on earth. In the Amplified in Matthew 16 verse 19, it reads, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind declared to be improper and unlawful on earth must be what is already bound in heaven. And whatever you loose declare lawful on earth must be what is already loosed in heaven. The Passion Translation puts it this way, I will give you the keys of heaven's kingdom realm to forbid on earth that which is forbidden in heaven, and to release on earth that is released in heaven. Powerful, allowing, disallowing. You see, when abortion, or let me call it this, when the murder of children in their mother's womb was legalized in the 1990s in this nation, that marked the opening of a gate, so to speak. It opt. It, it, it marked the opening of a gate over this nation, so to speak. When we now find ourselves battling a spirit of death 
and of violence, especially against our children, who do we have to blame? We as a nation allowed that spiritual gate to be opened and now we're facing the consequences of that. When we legalized so-called gay marriages, it marked the opening of a gate to certain behaviors and spirits in this nation to give them legal access. We gave them permission. We gave them free access, so to speak. When we see a marked increase in sexual perversion, in promiscuity, in same-sex relationships, and all the things that come with these types of behaviors and unclean spirits, especially amongst the next generation, why are we so surprised? We allowed it. Our leaders have allowed it. They opened the gate, so to speak, when they legislated it. You see, it's important that we keep certain gates closed over our nation, that we speak out whilst we can. It's much easier to prevent it than to try and rebuild the walls and pick up the pieces once the gate has already been destroyed. Okay? Now, if I think about this, a piece of legislation that hasn't been passed in this nation yet is the physician-assisted suicide or euthanasia. It's not currently legal in this nation. You know, the debate around euthanasia and its legal implications was stirred up um, again due to the 2019 case of Professor Sean Davison, who was charged with three counts of murder um, in circumstances where individuals approached him and asked for his assistance in their deaths. As soon as we allow this type of legislation, we open a door to ideology, we give permission to an ideology, to behavior, to um, sp certain spirits, to uh, certain ways of thinking that could lead us all to the edge of a slippery slope. And the bottom of that slippery slope includes similarities to the extermination of six million Jews in the Second World War. Because this type of ideology is unbiblical, unbiblical. It's atheistic in nature, okay? Um, it's humanistic in nature, okay? We can't allow this. We can't permit this in this nation. We really can't. We have to stand up and pray against it. We have to stand up and speak against it. And the other laws, maybe I'm not aware of, but you know, other policies being drawn up. We have to be watchful, watching to see what where is the enemy wanting to tear down gates? Where is the enemy wanting to open gates over the nation that need to be closed? Where is the enemy pulling down walls? You know, where can we stand in the gap? What role do we have? That is the heart of a nation builder. Another domain that I'm wanting to look at is arts and entertainment. And I believe that like media, this domain is a gate. It is an extremely influential um, gate a domain and gate that is shaping the thinking, the culture, the values, the norms, um, and so forth of the next generation. I'd like to share two quotes from the late Ravi Zacharias, um, very powerful quotes. Young people, he says, please hear me. This to me is the problem of the 20th century man. He no longer knows what to laugh at and no longer knows what to weep at. So you turn on your television screen and before you know it, you're looking at seduction, looking at a seduction yourself. Maybe for us, we turn on, or not for us, maybe for some people, they turn on their computer screen and they're looking at a seduction. 
And instead of weeping at it, you're watching in intrigue as the story unfolds. You watch illegitimacies transpire before your eyes and mine. And because Hollywood has convinced us that it is entertainment, we become entertained rather than sitting there with a crushed and broken heart and a contrite spirit. And I often wonder if my Lord Jesus were able to to stalk some of the seats of Broadway or sit in some of the theaters where things are perpetrated and shown to you and me, where jokes are made of his virgin birth, where Christianity is demeaned and mocked, where illegitimacies are glorified and exalted, that which is vulgar is intended to make us laugh, that which is sacred is intended to make us weep, rather than sit there in awe and gratitude for the sacred, what has really happened between the educational system and whatever else is happening, we've lost the differentiation between laughter and tears. It's vitally important what you laugh at. It is vitally important what you weep at. What breaks your heart tells God who you are. What makes you laugh tells God who you are. What is he saying? He's saying be careful of what we allow Hollywood and, and other media and arts and entertainment um, gates and uh, fora to, to, to tell us and we're being discipled and our thoughts are being shaped by what we watch from Hollywood. Our thoughts are being shaped by what we watch um, as entertainment, what we watch on, on various forms of media. And our conscience can become seared and we can become hardened. And, and it affects us in terms, of a, in terms of a people of prayer. Ravi Zacharias also says we were created to see through the eye with the conscience. Modern capacity is inviting us to see with the eye, devoid of conscience. Violence, computer games, violence and nudity and sexual uh, perversion and all of these things that are put out there as if they're entertainment. And we need to be careful because our hearts can become hardened. Our consciences can become seared. Our um, way, our worldview and our thinking can be shaped by something that is contrary to a biblical worldview. Andrew Fletcher, a, Scot a Scottish political activist, said, Let me write the songs of a nation. I don't care who writes its laws. Powerful. Let me write the songs of a nation. I don't care who writes its laws. You see, you can see a play in a theater on Broadway. You can turn on the TV to watch a movie or a cartoon or listen to music. And I assure you, you will find a certain philosophy of life is being endorsed. A certain philosophy, a certain worldview is being espoused. A certain worldview is being brought into question. The arts as a domain is the context within which many of the next generation are grappling with philosophy, with worldviews and with understanding life. And it's important that these things, we watch over these things because the worldview of the next generation will determine the what walls are broken down, what gates are destroyed for the next generation. I love this example of the power and the purpose of the arts in 2 Samuel 12. And the first time I heard it, it was our friend, uh, pastor friend, Tendai Chitsike, who had written an article on this. And it's such a brilliant example of the power of and purpose of 
the arts, of media, of entertainment. Um, and this particular scripture, you'll see if you go and read it in 2 Samuel 12, King David had just done the unthinkable. He'd taken another man's wife, he'd slept with her, and he'd arranged to have her husband killed. And, and this was David's shocking fall from grace. But it's also a picture of the depravity that lies within all of us, the depravity of man. Now, it's one thing to confront a man who is hardened and unrepentant after adultery and murder. It's quite another thing when that man, when the man in question is the king, where that man is a man who up until this moment has led extremely well. And this was the task of the prophet nation of the prophet Nathan. God sends the prophet Nathan to confront David concerning the sin and um, sends him to bring about repentance in the king. Now, even for a prophet of Nathan's stature, this is no small endeavor. How does he do it? How does he do it? How does he, he set about doing it? He does it in a most unusual way to some of us. He does it with a story, okay? The prophet Nathan tells the story so well and he parallels it to David's situation and it arouses within the king a righteous indignation that allows Nathan to reveal to David the villain in the story was in fact himself, King David. This then begins the process of David's repentance, a repentance that arrested a situation that really could have only got more destructive. What does 2 Samuel have to do with the arts? What does it have to do with media and entertainment? Well, everything, because we live in a world that is hardened by sin's deceitfulness, that is hell-bent on turning from God and centered on doing whatever it takes to secure personal pleasure and advancement. As God has done with both Nathan and himself, prophets are desperately needed to bring us back to our senses through the power of story, the arts, if you like. People, prophetic people and people are so necessary in the arts to bring it back and restore it to its original purpose. It is such a powerful tool to convict us in the depths of our heart. Now, I could carry on and on and talk about the other domains. I could carry on giving more examples. I could talk about agriculture and land reform. I could talk about business and economics and integrity. You know, I don't have the time today. Suffice to say that whatever domains or areas you and I are passionate about, whatever domains you and I are called to, whatever domains you and I work in, whatever domains we, we, we know that God wants us to carry burdens in, He wants us to pray around and build up the spiritual walls, so to speak. We need to do a few things. Number one, we need to allow God to soften our hearts so we can carry His burden. Just like Nehemiah inquired concerning of his people, um, to, to his people of Jerusalem and, and how it was there. He inquired. His heart was open. We also need to be inquisitive. Our heart needs to be open. And when we see what we see, when we see things that are broken, that are in ruin, we have to allow it to touch our hearts. We have to keep our hearts in such a way that they can be touched and they can carry the heart of the king when he wants us to carry his burden in particular, in particular um, aspects and areas and domains. Just like Nehemiah went and he went to go and physically inspect 
the walls and the gates he researched for himself. We too need to do research for ourselves in the domains that God has called us to pray into, in the domains that he's called us to rebuild the walls, in the domains in our nation where he wants to use us as those who rebuild the walls. We need to inspect the walls. We need to inspect the gates. We need to do research and see where are things really at so that when I'm praying, when I choose to stand in the gap, I can do so um, in an informed fashion. Okay, we also need, like I said last week, like I mentioned last week, we need to study his word in these particular areas so that we can populate our prayers with his word, with his wisdom, with his patterns, with his precepts. So when I'm praying, I'm not just praying the first idea that pops into my head, but I'm praying his word. I can pray in faith and I can, I know that as I release his word, it will accomplish that which it's sent for because he's the one who's releasing it through my mouth. And the Bible says in Isaiah that his word always accomplishes that which he sends it for. Okay, and we can begin to pray. I want us to begin to pray for these areas and bring them before God. So it's important we allow, we keep our hearts soft. We allow God to soften our hearts. We guard our hearts. We ask him to reveal the burdens to us. Ask him to reveal and show us what he wants us to carry. We pick up the burdens that he wants us to pick up. We leave the burdens that he doesn't want us to pick up. It's important we do the research. We find out what the current situation is on the ground in terms of these particular areas that God wants to use us to rebuild the walls in. We study his word. We become better disciples, more informed disciples in these areas. And then we begin to pray for these areas, begin to stand in the gap um, uh, in these areas, um, bringing them before God. Okay, next week, we're going to continue looking at Nehemiah and learning about the heart of a nation builder. This week, I've looked at just his response when he, when he heard the walls were broken down and the gates were burnt and, and what he did out of that. He prayed, carried the burden. He went to go and inspect the walls and the gates. Next week, I'm going to look at what he actually did because remember, Nehemiah was a man of prayer, but he was also a man of action. So as you go from today, as you go this week, I want to encourage you to go before God and to begin to inquire of the Lord. Say, Lord, um, reveal my heart to me. Show me where there's, where there's hardness, bitterness, callousness. You know, soften my heart. Help me to carry your heart and, and ask him to reveal to you the burdens that he's wanting you to carry. Ask him to show you the domains that he's wanting you to pray into. If you don't already know, ask him to sh begin to show you and help you as you do research um, into those particular things and, and, and ask him to give you wisdom as you study his word so you can populate your prayers from his word. Thanks, everyone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, even the word that has gone forth now. I thank you that it will accomplish that for which it has been sent. Help us, Lord God, as we do all of these things, as we endeavor to be nation builders, as we endeavor to be those who stand in the gap and pray and are available to be used by you to carry your burden and your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.